It's been a crazy busy week for us. School got started back with kids in the classrooms. And then this weekend, Lauren and I went down for another day in the estate sale business. I told her coming home, it feels like I'm working three full-time jobs. She's wearing me out. But anyway, it's good to be here this morning. I want to share a message with you if I could. If you'll get out your notes, and if you're taking notes, and I hope that you do, we're going to get right into it this morning. For those of you that uh, are, haven't been with us for a while, we are going through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation using a chronologically ordered, edited version of the Bible called The Story. We have called this series The Greatest Story Ever Told, and we're trying to help you see the Bible as a narrative, a story. And that story really has to do with God's unrelenting efforts to bring us back into a relationship with Him. So we're at chapter 28. We're coming near the end of the story. There are only 31 chapters in, in our version of the story. We're at chapter 28 talking about the beginning of the church in the book of Acts. Did you know this? According to the FBI, there were over 464,000 entries for missing children that were logged into the, to the National Crime Information Center last year. That's a staggering number, isn't it? Over 464,000 kids were reported missing last year. That's a parent's nightmare. I can't even imagine what a parent must go through to get that phone call or come to the realization my child's not where they're supposed to be. Well, if you've ever find yourself in that situation, and I pray to God you never do, the Department of Justice has a book that you can download uh, off their website, and it's for parents who have missing children. It's, it's a book that no parent ever wants to have to read, of course. But on the cover of the book, you can go look at it for yourself if you want to. On the cover of the book, they list some key bullet points and action steps that parents are supposed to take if they ever find themselves with a missing child. Some of those bullet points, those action steps say things like this. Remember, you're not alone. Hope is essential. Trust your gut instincts and share them with law enforcement. Let people know you love your child and need their help. Enlist other people to help you in the search. It concludes by saying this, never stop looking. Never stop looking. The book also has in it some true stories of families who have suffered through this kind of awful situation. The family, it tells the story of one family who was missing their child, a child named Jacob, Jacob Wetterling. They had been searching for him since 1989. For 27 years, 27 years, they continued to post messages on every website they could get it on, every TV show they could that would, that would post the message for them. They continued to post these messages for 21 years, saying things like, Jacob, we're, st we're still searching for you. Jacob, we'll never quit looking for you. But unfortunately, their search finally did come to an end when the FBI discovered Jacob's remains in 2016. But for 27 years, they didn't stop looking. And I want you to know something, and this is why I bring this up. God does the same thing. He never stops looking for his missing children. Never. He never stops searching for his lost children, his missing children, to bring them home. That's the theme of the greatest story ever told. The theme is this, that God will not stop until he brings his missing children home again. You can divide the entire story up into four movements. 
And I want to review these with you and share them with you. You can divide the greatest story ever told up into four movements as it's given to us in the Bible. First, we, the first movement is creation. We see it in Genesis 1 and 2, where man is especially created in the image of God. Created to be a son or daughter of God, a child of God. But then in movement 2, Genesis 3 through 11, we see the fall. Man rejected God's love. Man rebelled against God's rule. And because of the fall, all of mankind, every man, woman, boy, and girl have now become lost. They're missing. Isaiah 53.6 puts it this way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. So what God does in much of the remainder of the Bible, God launches a plan of redemption. A plan to bring His missing kids home. We see this from Genesis 12 all the way through the book of Jude, which is the, last, the next to last book in the Bible. God launches a plan of redemption. It's a massive search and rescue mission to bring His missing kids home. God's redemption plan can be broken down, really, into three phases. There are three, three phases to His redemption plan. The first phase is Israel. Israel. The whole Old Testament is taken up with this idea that Israel is God's chosen people. God wanted a nation that He could use to show the world His nature and His character. God wanted a particular nation that He could use to bring a Savior into the world. And God chose Israel to be the nation to implement that plan. Phase two is Jesus Christ Himself. The second phase of God's redemption plan is Christ Jesus. Christ Himself says in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus also said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And we see in the Gospel accounts the Son of God who laid His life down to pay the ransom for God's lost and missing children to bring them back home to God again. Christ's sacrifice redeems our lives as God's sons and daughters and makes it possible. He opens up the way to be reconciled to God to come home again to our Heavenly Father. But there's a third phase to this redemption plan, and we're going to focus a little bit on that this morning. The third phase is this, the church. There's a third part to this redemption plan that God gives us in the Bible. It's the church. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, He's speaking to His disciples. He's speaking to men and women like you and me who've been called by His name. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. We call that the Great Commission. We as the church, those who have repented of sin, trusted in Christ as Savior, we are brought into the family of God, into His kingdom, and now we become part of the rescue mission. He calls people like you and me to go into all the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. He tells us to go, preach the good news, and make disciples of all nations. It's a command that comes from the heart of God. We are called. We are called to become part of the rescue effort. But He doesn't just leave us with a calling. He also empowers us to do it. He gives us the power we need to be effective in our calling. We see this in Acts chapter 1.8 that we have been empowered to be a church that is effective 
in bringing lost children home to God. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. You'll be my ambassadors. You'll be my representatives in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here's what I, I want to kind of set this little uh, uh, message up today with, is this, that you and I have been called by God and empowered by God to become part of His rescue mission to bring His kids home. I hope you, you catch that. Because a lot of us have a lot of screwed up ideas about church. And I want us to stay focused on our primary calling. Our primary calling is to take the gospel message to God's lost, missing children and let them know there's a way home. There's a way home. The fourth and final movement of the story is about restoration. Rest I'm looking forward to that day. The book of Revelation shows us how God will wrap it all up when Christ returns to fully restore God's rule and God's reign upon the earth again. But we're not at the restoration part yet. We're still in the redemption part. We're still in the part of God's plan that speaks of rescue, redemption. And we will be until we see Christ's face again. So as we wait, Christ to come and restore all things as we wait for the conclusion of the story. How should we go about fulfilling God's purpose for us as a church? How do we go about fulfilling His calling as His people? What can we as His church do to become more effective at working with God in His phase three plan to find and save His lost kids? Because that's really what our life is about as this church. I want to stop and watch the video that we usually watch every week. So Darian, have you got that set up? This is kind of a summary of what chapter 28 is all about, then we'll come back to the message, okay? All right. Man, I enjoy those, those videos. What I want us to do this morning is focus on our primary mission as the church of Jesus Christ. We, have you ever heard of a term called mission, dr mission drift? It's mission drift. It's a phenomenon that happens in a lot of organizations where they start out well, they start out focused, they know exactly what they're trying to do, but before you know it, they're encountering drift. They get off of their, their purpose and doing other stuff that they're not really good at doing. Does that make sense? You see it happen all the time in companies in America. Well, guess what? It's happened. It happens to the church a lot. We start off well. We're focused. We know what we're called to do. But before you know it, we're over. We're trying to make somebody else happier. Something happens, and we kind of respond to it. And before we know it, we're completely off our primary mission, mission drift. And I'm afraid, as I look around um, at the church in America and, and other, uh, I don't want to, you know, throw cast shade on the church in America, but man, it seems like we have forgotten what we're about sometimes. And I want to point that out as we talk about the first church, because it seemed like they did things right. This church was criticized by, by its critics, and you know what they said about it? These people have turned the entire world upside down. I want people to say that about us. 
These people have turned the entire world, Calera, South Shelby County, completely upside down. I want to turn some things upside down. And I want to make sure that we as a church stay focused on the mission that we've been called to. But first of all, we have to expose some of the mission drift that I believe has occurred and that often occurs without us even knowing about it. I want to be the most effective phase three church we can be. I want us to be focused on our mission to take the gospel to the lost and missing children of God and tell them there is a way home. There's a way home. Come with me, I'll show you how. In Acts chapter 2, we're given a snapshot of what that early church was like. I'm going to read two passages of Scripture. If you're trying to look it up in in your Bibles, it's Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 42 through 47, it tells us what was going on in this very first church. It tells us how they were able to turn their world upside down. It says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Added to their number daily those who were being brought home, if you will. Go to Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. All the believers were one in heart and mind. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Think about that for just a minute. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Oh, Mark, are you going to tell us to dig in our pockets and give today? No, I'm not going to mention money at all. So, all right, chill, chill, okay? And bow your heads and... Pray with me. Father, we love you so much. Whatever these people had is what I want. I want to be so devoted to my purpose, Lord, that everything else becomes secondary. I want to stay focused on the mission that you have given us, myself personally and to us as a church, to take your gospel everywhere we go, To let people know that there's a way home. There's a way back home to the Father. There's a way to be set free from the bondage of sin. There's a way to experience life and life to the full through Jesus Christ. I want to be part, God. I want to be part of your redemption plan. I don't want to suffer mission drift. I want to be focused. I want to live every moment of my life with that mission clear in my mind. This is why I'm here. This is what I am to do. And I have been empowered to do it by your Spirit. So I have no excuses. I have no excuses. Father, I pray today, if we are guilty of mission drift in any way, if we are guilty of seeing church for something other than it truly is according to your word, I pray, Father, that you would clarify it in our minds. Bring us to a place of repentance where we will, we will let that, 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 that false illusion of what church is go so that we will embrace the truth of who the church is and live in it. 
We are your people, your sons and your daughters, called by your name and empowered by you. We've been raised up for such a time as this. And I believe it's the most important time the world has ever seen. Because you're soon to, you're soon to return. Make us conscious of that as well, Lord. You are soon to return. There will be a time of restoration soon. But in the meantime, we work. We work until Jesus comes to see his name glorified, his gospel preached, and the lost come home. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to use these two brief descriptions of the earliest church to, if you will, compare and contrast it with the way a lot of people think about church today. Because I think this will help us see how far we've drifted from God's original purpose for His church. And what I hope it does, I pray it helps us get more in line with, what, with, with, with God's way of thinking about His church and what we're called to do as His church. So it's going to be a really simple message, and I'm just hoping to provoke and stimulate you to think a little bit about how you think about church, what you think this is all about. So that somehow you can kind of, if you need to, can get lined up with what God has to say. Because I don't know about you, I want to live in the center of His will. I want to live according to His purposes for my life, because I know how easy it is to get sidetracked by something else. Alright? Today, some people treat the church like it's a movie theater. They come to be entertained. They spend a couple of hours on the weekend as part of an audience hoping to be distracted from life's hardships, or maybe inspired by a motivational message. Or maybe they want to be moved by someone's testimony, but it's more like an entertainment option for the weekend. They hope the pastor tells a few jokes so they can laugh. They hope the worship band plays a song that might make them cry. Let me tell you something, that isn't the way the book of Acts describes an effective phase three church. The early church didn't gather to be entertained. They came together to be changed. Hear me? They didn't come together to be entertained. When they got together, it's because they knew they needed to change. There was still something in their, in their life that needed a little tweaking, a little fixing. Acts 2.42 says it this way, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That means they committed themselves they committed themselves to the teaching that those apostles gave them. They sat at their feet. They, and they, they sat at the apostles' feet and their hearts were, 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 were intent on understanding what that teaching said and, and they wanted to know, now, how do we put it into practice? You see, God's Word became for them a way of life. A lot of these people had no clear understanding of what God was trying to say. These apostles were trying to make that teaching clear. And they were trying to understand it so they could embrace it and begin to live it in their everyday life because they knew what it felt like to be lost. And they didn't want to feel like that anymore. They wanted to live like they were found, like they were the sons and daughters of God. So God's Word became a way of life for them. You see, in God's redemptive plan, listen, in God's redemptive, redemptive plan, church isn't just another weekend entertainment option for us. Church is a life-changing necessity. You hear me? It's a life-changing necessity. God's plan for redemption requires a people who know what it means to live for God and who have set their minds on doing it. 
not just talking about it. The world has enough hypocrisy out there. Let that not be said of us. We do not gather as a church to be entertained. We gather so that the Lord might change us as we study His Word together and as we learn to put it into practice together. Listen, Paul prayed for the Colossian church, and it's my prayer today. I pray this a similar kind of prayer for us nearly every day of my life. Colossians 1, 9 and 10 says, we ask God to give you complete knowledge of His will. A lot of us are walking around with partial knowledge of God's will because we have not intentionally listened to the teaching and put it into practice. We walk around with a partial knowledge of God's will and we suffer because of it, don't we? We ask God to give you complete knowledge of His will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then, then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. You want to be an effective phase three church? Devote yourself to His teaching. This isn't entertainment. This is for life change. Today, some people treat the church like a department store. Some people treat church like a department store. They're always shopping churches and looking for a better deal. If they don't find one with a perfect blend of preaching, worship styles, and family ministry, well, they keep shopping churches until they do. But the people in the early church didn't act like customers in a department store. They acted like members of a family. Did you get that as you read that description? They acted like members of a family. They didn't just devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They devoted themselves to one another. Acts 2.44 says all the believers were together and had everything in common. Acts 4.32 says all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. You get the idea that in this earliest church, this effective phase three church, they didn't seem to have a what's in it for me attitude. They had a what can I do for you attitude. They walked in the door trying to find a way to help someone else. Instead of walking in the door wondering, what am I going to get out of this? They had the mindset of a healthy family, frankly. That is the mindset of a healthy family. What can I do to help you become the better person that God wants you to be? What can I do to help take some of the burden off of you? To free you up so that you can enjoy life more? That's the mindset of a healthy family. Each member looking after the needs of the other members which is exactly the instruction we're given in Galatians chapter 6 that says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let's do good to all people. Saved or unsaved, let's do good to everybody, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. You see, this church was effective because they sacrificed for one another. They cared for one another. They watched out for one another. And it was that mindset that turned the world upside down because in the midst of a selfish world, a world that was looking out for number one, these guys were looking out for each other. I want to be part of a church like that. That's going to make us effective in bringing lost, God's lost children back home again. Third, some people treat the church like a restaurant. And when you go to the restaurant after church today, please tip your waiter or waitress. They'll tell you, man, Sundays are the worst. All these Christians come in from church and they bum them on the tip. Man, don't do that. Anyway, that's, that's a side note. 
Some people treat the church like a restaurant. They come in, they sit down, and they expect somebody to wait on them. They may serve me. Come on. <laughs> I see some of you guys working in the food business. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, they expect the church to cater to their personal needs and wants and preferences. And when the church fails to do so, instead of finding a way to jump in and serve to make things better, they drop out and start looking for other options. But the way to make a church better, the way to make anything better, the way to make your home better, the way to make your job better, is to jump in and serve to make it better. We keep waiting on somebody else to do it, don't we? Well, that's... Have they ever done it? No, because you need to be the one to jump in and do it. The way to make a church or anything else better is to jump in and serve to make it better. And that was a hallmark of this early church, selfless service. I think if they had a logo, you know what their logo was? A dish towel. A dish towel. That's the way Jesus concluded his ministry to the disciples. He did what? He washed their feet, taking on the form of a servant. Can you imagine how amazing our church, any church, any group would be if everybody jumped in, not wondering, you know, who's going to serve me, but how am I going to serve them? Imagine what would happen. What kind of culture we would cultivate here. How attractive that would be to an outside world that lives, you know, dog eat dog, me first. But they walk in and suddenly, wow, look at these people serving each other. You guys do a great job of that already. I'm not slamming anybody. I, this church is so special in my sight. You guys are amazing at what you do. And I hope you don't take this as criticism of who you are. I'm just saying there's always room for improvement. Amen? I just don't want to get caught up with mission drift. I want to stay focused on who we are. This is who we've got to be. This is who we've got to be. Acts 2.45 says this about that early church. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. When members of the early church walked in the door, they weren't asking, what's in this for me? Instead, they're asking, what's, what can I do for you? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 11, the greatest among you must be a servant. I've been in some churches... where the richest among them became the elders. You won't see that happen here. The ones who become our elders will be the ones that serve the best, not make the most. You get it? You know why? Because we have to set the example. We have to set the example for what a servant looks like. And thank you, Richard and Debbie. These guys were amazing. They, they, I just, I'm just pointing them out. I could, I could, you know, talk about anybody, but let me talk about Richard and Debbie for just a minute. They've been with us about three years now, right? After about six months, Richard comes up to me. Pastor Mark, I can't just sit here anymore. You got to give me something to do. And I said, well, Richard and Debbie, I, what, what, what you want to do? Well, anything, man, anything. Just give me something to do. So I said, well, we need greeters at the door. Would you be a greeter, hand out bulletins, and welcome people when they come to service? Yeah, man, we'll do that when you want to start. Next Sunday, too. Oh, no, we'll be there next Sunday. They haven't missed a Sunday, I guess, but very infrequently. 
And always, after they've called me to let me know, and I tell you what, that little act of service every Sunday morning when people walk through the door, they're the first people you see. And aren't you glad they're the first people you see? Hug, smile, they know you by name. You get paid a lot for that, don't you, brother? We've even given you a title, right? <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I that's, that's the kind of attitude. The selfless service. I don't need a position, don't need a title, don't need a, no, don't need a paycheck. I just need to jump in and serve because I know that's what God's calling me to do. Selfless service. The greatest among you must be a servant, Jesus said. And in an effective phase three kind of church, everyone sees themselves as a servant. They don't see themselves as a master. They see themselves as a servant. They see us all being in this ministry together. We're all jumping in to try to find ways to meet needs and help people. That's what an effective phase three church is going to be like. Don't see it like a restaurant. Today, fourth, is that four? Some people treat the church like a gas station. They pull in each Sunday morning for a quick fill up and then out the door right back to their daily lives, never to think about it again. They think of a church as a one, one day a week kind of thing. It fills up an hour and a half, two hours maybe. But Acts 2, 46 through 47 tells us that effective phase three church look, didn't see things like that at all. It says every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. I want you to listen to these words, glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. I, I don't want you to understand this point as being about meeting every day on our church campus. That's not the point, I don't think, or the, or the point this, this uh, these couple of verses are trying to make. I really don't think that's the intent of the author. What I want us to do instead is to focus on the words that were used to describe this early church as they went about their daily business. They were glad, sincere, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people every day. Every day. Question. Are those the words used to describe the church today? Glad, sincere, enjoying the favor of all the people. Or as we go about our daily business, are we now more likely to be described as not glad, but mad? Not sincere, but hypocritical? Not enjoying the favor of all the people, but experiencing hostility for most of the people? You see, these early Christians, this is what I want you to see here. They were experiencing more, way more persecution than you and I could ever imagine, all right? They were losing their jobs. They were losing their homes because of the stands they were taking for Christ. That's why they were, everybody else was jumping in to help provide for these hungry people that no longer had homes because now they were serving Jesus. That, that's why all these people were jumping in like they were. So let, let's, let's be clear. These early Christians didn't see the church as just a one-time-a-week fill-up, only to go back to their daily lives. What they saw instead, they saw themselves as God's people, called by God to reflect His light, called by God to reflect His life, and called by God to reflect His love to the world every moment of every day. Every day. Every Worship is every day. Worship isn't a Sunday morning experience. Worship is an everyday lifestyle of obedience 
living this life as God has called us to live it, glad, sincere. That leads to favor, which means it gives us the right to share the gospel. It gives us the moral right. And often, they start asking us, what makes you so different? Whatever you got, I want some of that. It enables us, it enables us to share the gospel with missing children to tell them Christ has purchased for them a way home. Which is exactly what Paul is talking about when he writes in Romans 12.1. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Place it before God as an offering. You see, worship isn't just a Sunday thing. It certainly wasn't to them and it should not be to us. Worship isn't just a Sunday thing. It's an everyday thing for a phase three church. It opens up doors to conversations. Gives us the right to speak in difficult situations. Finally, some people today treat the church like a fitness center. I hope you can follow my logic on this. It's a little convoluted, but I think you'll get it. Some people treat the church like a fitness center. You would think that people who need to get in shape would go to a fitness center. That's what you would think, right? But research says just the opposite. Most people who go to the fitness center are already in shape. They're just trying to maintain their shape, right? Now, people who need to go to the fitness center often buy the membership but they never go. Come on, let's be honest. If I were to ask, how many of you have, have a membership to a fitness gym? Yes, but you never go? Don't answer that question. That's the way a lot of people think about the church. Listen, a lot of people don't go to the gym even though they need to, even though they bought the membership, they still don't go. You know why? Because they're afraid of being judged. They think everybody in that gym is going to look at them and going to fat shame them. Right? That's the new term, right? Fat shame. I mean, honestly, they won't step into a gym because they think, oh, man, everybody's going to be looking at me. I don't know if I want that or not. You know, a lot of people think that about the church. They think the church is filled with a lot of healthy people. They all got it all together. Healthy marriages, strong relationships with their kids, finances all in order. And it's terrifying for them to think about walking through those doors. Just like it's terrifying to somebody who's out of shape to walk into a gym. But let me, if you're here today and you've been able to overcome that fear, and you're here today in spite of the fact that you felt really uncomfortable coming. Let me just stop and tell you something. Ain't nobody in here got it together. Nobody. We're all a bunch of screw-ups. Everybody in this place. See, I know the secrets of most of you people in this room. We've talked. I know where your skeletons are buried. 
you know where mine are buried. Many of you. Come on. Because we've had some very frank conversations, haven't we? Don't treat the church like a fitness center. Don't be afraid to walk in these doors. Let me tell you something. We're all beggars. We're all beggars trying to help each other find another crust of bread. We all need the Lord to work in our lives. We're all screw-ups, desperately in need of the grace of a Savior. Listen, I really want you to understand that. I want you to know that. This is where you need to be. This is where you need to be. You see, the church isn't a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners, of which I am one. Paul, Paul, even after years of service to the Lord, referred to himself as the greatest of all sinners. We're all broken. Every one of us is broken. We've all been lost. We've all at one time in our life been missing. We've all at one time in our life have held up our puny little fist and shaken them in the face of God like we're going to scare him or something. All of us. All of us. And the only reason we're moving toward health spiritually, emotionally, the only, the only reason there's any hope for us is because through Christ we found there is a way home. There is a way to be made whole again. There is a way to live in freedom. There is a way to overcome the obstacles and the struggles. And as we journey through this life together, guess what? I have the opportunity to encourage you, and you have the opportunity to encourage me. And by God, when the restoration, time of restoration comes, and we see Christ, we'll be standing there together celebrating the life that we've lived in Christ Jesus, and now the eternity we get to enjoy together forever. Listen, this ain't no fitness center, man. This is a hospital. It's a clinic for those who need help. Don't let your fear keep you from coming and letting the Lord do in you what He wants to do. We're all broken. We're all struggling with something. We're all equally dependent on God's grace for forgiveness in life. We're all just beggars helping other beggars find bread. The early church understood this. I'm convinced the early church understood this. And you know how? Because when you read Acts 2.47, and it, it says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Added to their number daily. Let me tell you something. I believe this is one thing Christian Life Fellowship gets right nearly every, every day. I think most people, when they walk through these doors, understand this is an, is, a, is an accepting place. This is a place that embraces the broken. This is a place that loves people back to life again. But let's beware of mission drift. Let's make sure we stay like that. Because there is a tendency sometimes to get so caught up in how far we've come, we forget from where, from where we've come. And we tend to get a little self-righteous. And we can tend to look down our noses at people when we used to be that people. <laughs> Come on. Beware of mission drift. Beware of mission drift. 
a phase three church understands the life-changing power of grace. A phase three church understands the life-changing power of grace. The thing I love about that early church, as I read about them, that early church wasn't a place that demanded people clean themselves up before they came. I think their attitude was, when you come, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God will clean you up. We're just going to be faithful to love you and tell you the truth, as He does. All right. I want to review real quick, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come back, if you will. Look, I love this church. I think this is the most unique church. I know it's the most unique church I've ever been part of. And it's because I think we take seriously God's call to be part of His redemptive plan. We're not perfect by far. We have a whole lot of faults. But I really wanted to use this message and this this chapter of the story to clear up some misconceptions about church. You see, we're all on this mission together. This is not just a mission carried by the pastor or the pastors or the elders. This is a mission we all participate in. And we have to stay true to this mission. We have to stay true to this mission. God has called us to be part of His plan to bring His missing children home. We have to be consciously aware of this mission or we will tend to drift away from it and we will tend to become ineffective. We are not and never will be a movie theater. We're not here to entertain you. We exist to help you change. We are not a department store that gives you an opportunity to shop for what you want. We are a family helping to meet each other's needs. We are not a restaurant where you come in and just demand that you be served. That's not what we, we can't do that. It's a place where you look for ways to serve. We're not a gas station. And I hope you never see the church as a gas station that you come to one time a week or only when needed. But instead, you understand that it's all about worshiping and obeying on a Monday morning just like you do on a Sunday morning. Worship is a lifestyle. Not a weekend experience. And let's never, let's never drift into a way of thinking that this church we're part of is just a fitness center. Only meant for those who are in good shape. No, 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 no. This is a hospital for sinners in need of the power of God's truth and His life-changing grace. This isn't a showcase for saints. This is a showcase for the glory of God. For just a moment, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me, okay?
just for a moment. Just for a moment. Let me ask you a question. Do you understand, if you are a child of God, if you were at one point missing, but now the Lord has brought you home by His grace, do you understand what life is really about? Your life really isn't even your own anymore. Your life revolves around Him and His purposes and His calling for your life. And His purpose and His calling for your life is to be His representative to a lost and dying world. His calling on your life is to be someone He can use as light, as salt, to bring others home. Have you suffered mission drift? Have you begun to think of yourself? Have you begun to think of church as something other than what it truly is? Part of God's redemptive plan to save the lost, to disciple those who are brought into the kingdom. And are you using your life, your gifts, your talents, your, even your money, are you using the things that God has blessed you with, your experiences, your testimony, are you using it to bring other lost children home? Or have you forgotten? Or have you ignored what he's clearly said to you. He has called us to be part of his redemptive plan. He has called us to work in the fields for their white unto harvest. He has called us to go and make disciples of all nations. He has called us to lay aside our own plans and our own agendas so that we can work with Him to bring other lost children home. He has empowered us by His Holy Spirit to get the job done. He has empowered us and given us gifts that we can use to bring Him glory. He has empowered us to be witnesses. He has empowered us to have those conversations. He has empowered us to show love that would overcome the hate and the, and the division. He has empowered us to serve and not demand to be served. He has empowered us to do remarkable things as we share the Gospel with His missing children. Look, this life He called us to is so much bigger than just about you. It's about Him, and it's about them. Let's shake off the silly notions of this culture that we live in that says the entire universe revolves around you. It does not. He is God. You are not. And He has called you and empowered you to be part of His plan as His church, as His sons, as His daughters to bring other missing children home.
Can he use your voice? Can he use your life? Can he use your testimony? Can he use your gifts? Let's not forget what this is about. Let's not forget why Jesus did what he did. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he sets us free through his blood. He washes us clean, makes us new so that we can represent him well upon the earth. Live as his sons and daughters. Sharing truth and life with others. Go and make disciples, he said.